0: Hello, Vass here. Welcome to the show. Do you know anyone who's climbed a church in Old Winchelsea, taken a boat out from Dunwich, or rented an Airbnb in the commune at Bray? These places may have a familiar ring to anyone living in Britain today, but they no longer exist. They're settlements long since swept away by the forces of history. I spoke to Dr. Matthew Green about his new bestseller, Shadowlands, a chronicle of British towns and cities that have disappeared from the map and our memory. Matt is one of our most gifted young historians, and almost certainly the tallest. Most days, you can find him leading immersive tours across the streets of the capital, telling stories from London's rich and debauched history. I had a great time talking to him, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Matt, our listeners may know you as a historian of London, transporting audiences back to the gin palaces, bear pits and coffee shops that once thrived in the capital, but your new book Shadowlands takes us to towns, cities and villages that have vanished from the map, lost and almost forgotten. How did you begin your journey back through this lost Britain? Well,
1: the inspiration for it came from a visit I made to a place called Dunwich, which, I, as I'm sure some of your listeners will know, was once this kind of sprawling medieval city on the cliffs of Suffolk. And unfortunately, medieval sea storms swept great bloody swaths of it into the sea. And then over the succeeding centuries, basically the entire thing literally went under. Um, I'd actually never heard of it before I went to do that particular TV programme, but it really sort of captured something within me. And I felt, you know, how many more of these lost places are there? Not just cities, but villages and abandoned islands and ghost towns. Could we weave together a whole narrative? So I was interested in the idea of going from like lost London, as you like, to lost Britain. And it kind of felt timely because at the time it was the era of, you know, Brexit and Trump, a sense of everything melting down. And, of course, the the climate crisis was actually beginning to eat into settlements which are on the coast and and are vanishing into the sea today. So that was uh, about three or four years ago now. And then I did a bit of research and set off on this itinerary of destruction to some of the most recherche corners of Britain some of them very hard to reach, and selected uh, eight of them, and uh, that, that forms the core of the book. Why
0: don't you think lost places have so much power over our imaginations? I'm thinking here both of real towns like Pompeii, and of mythic cities like Atlantis.
1: Yeah, so I think part of it is uh, cultural, and part of it is is, is to do with the, the future as well. So Obviously, there's something inherently alluring about the idea of a lost city. People think about mythical places um, like uh, Atlantis, and uh, people actually tend to think of, you know, like drowned cities and, and places that have fallen foul of the historical process as something quite exotic, something that you wouldn't necessarily find, say, in a rainy field in Wales, for example. So there's a kind of irresistible allure there. And Part of the reason for that is that these places, even when they're real, they get bound up with mythology so quickly. So if you take Donich again as an example, how many times have we heard that if you go and stand on those cliffs and stare out to sea, you feel that overwhelming sense of emptiness, but you're meant to be able to hear the bells of the 50 drowned churches. There were never actually 50 churches, there were only ever seven. But obviously because the evidence is lost, the archives were washed into the sea along with all the towns and streets and owl sanctuaries that then then there's a, a dearth of empirical evidence and into that void myths flow and people are interested in disentangling uh fact from fiction so that's one reason and you see that over and over again with the places i look at old winchelsea is another one on the sussex coast and you know as late as the 19th century, fishermen were saying that they were still anchoring on the ruins of this drowned city, whereas in fact nothing of the sort was taking place. But on a, on a more fundamental level, I think people are interested in it because when you see these absences and ruins, um, and, and there's such a haunting beauty to one of these places, like like the kind of priory in the windswept field, which was once just part of this enormous city, but now that's all that's left, or staring into the reservoir, like where Capilcalin is in Wales, like with the drowned village beneath or just a kind of uh, a battered church tower, like in Warren Percy, the Church of St Martin, Um, there's a beauty that's at odds with the suddenness and violence of the fate. And when you look at those sorts of ruins, there's a sense of sort of time being in abeyance. And I think that has a very powerful hold over us because it fetches the past. It brings home the fragility of the present. But most chillingly, um, I think it sort of prognosticates our own ruin. And I I, I think it's as gloomy as that. People stare out at these drowned cities and you think, well, you know, that could be London one day. When you visit these places wiped out by the Black Death and all you see is just ghost streets scorched into the earth, you think, you know, how many of our own settlements are going to end up this way? So it's um, rather sobering, but can also bring a sort of emotional tranquility as well, bizarrely. You wouldn't expect that, but I did find that over the four years it, like, it, it it is quite uplifting in its way
0: the first destination on your journey into the shadowlands is older even than the pyramids it's a stone yeah. age village right on our doorstep can you tell us about scarabray and what you found there
1: yes yeah, scarabray uh I, I would describe as a sort of commune bored into the earth no one knew of its existence until this enormous tempest in 1850 ripped the veil off a sand dune known as Scarabre. And within, to everyone's surprise, were these sort of circular houses or huts, caverns perhaps. And peering in, um, you can see everything almost as it was left almost 5,000 years ago. You can see bed frames and mantelpieces. You can see little sort of embryonic fridges where they kept all sorts of uh, shellfish and shelves, and there's this really sort of surprising mellow domesticity, which perhaps cuts against our mental picture of the prehistoric age as a time of just people desperately scrambling to survive, fighting off all sorts of ferocious attacks. And Scarabra, as you say, it is older than the pyramids, and it was built, or or bored, whatever we want to call it, in the period when humans stopped being nomadic hunter-gatherers and began to put down roots and build permanent settlements sustained by agriculture. And that basically is the point from which our entire civilised history unfolds, because it allowed for the emergence of elites and political systems, it allowed for the development of aspects of culture and forms of communication and trade, because people were no longer just marauding about all the time. And this is the most exquisitely preserved Neolithic village. So it comes uh, part three of the Stone Age, if you like. So you've got the, the, the 2.5 million uh, years. Um, then you've got the Mesolithic when they begin to husband animals like dogs um, and have sort of hunting shelters, but not houses at that point. Then you have the Neolithic when people do begin to put down roots because farming spreads as an idea. So that was the first place I went to, and um, actually one of the last places I went to was on the other side of Scotland, St Kilda, which is perhaps the remotest inhabitable part of the United Kingdom, and there lived a community for over 2,000 years which was insular, and and, and they harvested puffins and fulmars and other birds from the cliffs and and, and maintained this sort of autarky until the arrival of... Tourism sort of corrupted the whole way of life and and instilled the population with wanderlust and they all eventually abandoned it in 1930. But tourists still go to St Kilda. And for me, it's like a vision of some kind of post-apocalyptic future after environmental or nuclear catastrophe. So almost with Scarabré on Orkney, you see the origins of the civilization, But when you go to St Kilda, you see what might lie... Beyond it, so they, they were two particularly chilling bookends, if you like.
0: What happened to the inhabitants of Scarabray? Well, we don't know.
1: What we do know is that their homes ended up filled with sand, and it used to be thought that this was because there was a utterly terrifying and um, apocalyptic sandstorm, and everyone fled in terror. Evidence for this is uh, w- w- one of many pieces of evidence. Is this one? One lady seems to have abandoned her very valuable bead necklace and it got caught in the the door frames and as though everyone had left in a hurry and there was still food in the cooking pots but more recently it seems that you know it would have done a lot more it would have needed a lot more than one sandstorm to frighten the inhabitants off because they could have just come back and, and dug the sand out so it could have been a plague A pathogen could have leapt across, some kind of anthrax. It could have been that the the young left in in seek of some better life or some other reason that we don't know about. It does seem as though the sea was sweeping inwards, making the land rather infertile, so perhaps the farming became unsustainable.
0: But we we, we don't know, and and of course there's no written evidence. The next place you visited wasn't uh, such a small settlement, but in fact was an entire city whose location was forgotten. What, and perhaps more importantly, where is Trelech?
1: Trelech is
0: located
1: in the Welsh Marches, which is the borderland um, between England and Wales, which the colonising English were very keen to take over. And it's been described as the Wild West of Britain, um, all sorts of, sort of massacres and horrific uh, torture chambers and, and you know, guerrilla fighting took place in this borderland in the sort of uh, Middle Ages, the, the period immediately following the Norman conquest. And th- this is quite a fascinating story because Trelec today is a really sleepy village. You know, there's a nice village pub. Uh, there's, there's a church, which kind of looks a bit too big for the village. But nonetheless, there's a, a wishing well to St Anne and with these three Bronze Age stones that look like they've kind of crash-landed from heaven. Um, it's incredible, probably one of the most peaceful places I've ever been. Um, I didn't want to leave it. And it's astonishing to think that this was actually once a giant munitions factory. This was a turbine of war where the most awful sort of iron weapons were forged and hammered out that could inflict devastating injuries and tilt entire wars to the English advantage and the reason we know all this is because rental rolls survive from 1288 showing that it was the second biggest urban settlement in wales after cardiff which rather begs the question where did it all go because you know it's it's not a city today and some light was shed on this ironically because they're blind by moles so in 2002 a farmer noticed that moles had been digging up shards, um, potsherds of pottery, and this soon reached the ears of a, um, one of the many wonderfully eccentric characters you, you get in the book, an archaeology student called Stuart Wilson, and he, he was almost like a sort of Balzacian monomaniac. He was like so convinced that this must have meant that the actual lost city lay beneath the field. He bought the field with his life savings, dug it up, and he's found an awful lot to corroborate that theory. It has to be said. Although not everyone agrees with him and a lot of people are quite bitter about this because they, they, they dispute that it could ever have been a city because it's on this kind of landlocked plateau. But it's a dig that's ongoing and they found all sorts of, they found a mummified cat, they found a filial, I think it's called, or filial perhaps, to put on the roof to scare off witches and a beautiful jewel-encrusted pilgrim's Pot. And I like the sense that you know, with each year that passes, the earth is gonna offer up more of its secrets and and, and sort of manifest what what's contained within these figures in the rental rules and, and, and show us you know what, what, what this place was actually like. So it's thought that it was a boom town, iron mining boom town, and and as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, anyone who's been to California, a boom town can often be a sort of foredoomed town and very quickly become a ghost town, like the gold rush towns in California and even somewhere like Detroit for a time. Once that natural resource is exploited, the patrons of Trelec, the Declare family, were slaughtered at Barochburn and the whole thing fell into decline, attacked by the Welsh, sank beneath the soil until these wonderfully intrepid moles dug it up uh, hundreds of years later.
0: Will you tell us a bit more about Stuart and uh, his rivals in archaeology and history and the ongoing saga over where exactly Trellick is and who has the rights to, to get up? Because I think this is just a wonderful example of history as a living thing.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and it's kind of... Uh, well, it was refreshing in that chapter, actually, because having been stuck in the prehistoric times, I could suddenly go go, and quote tweets, and and it all became very modern. But, but, uh, you know, in a nutshell, there were professional archaeologists, particularly the Howells, um, who who published a series of wonderfully scholarly and thorough articles a couple of decades before the Moles did their thing. And they they maintain that, you know, Stuart Wilson isn't, isn't really sort of digging in the ground for a city, but he's building castles in the air, and they say that, you know, it, it was never a city. And if, even if it had been, they found it first because they have excavated and written up these kind of iron forges or, or these structures where iron seems to have been hammered out into munitions. And there were workshops, but they were also perhaps residences as well. And they, they object to him on a, a number of grounds, but he doesn't actually have any sort of professional qualifications. Beyond his degree in archaeology. And they're, they're a little bit suspicious because they're like, well, who's monitoring these digs that he's doing? And how do we know he's not actually causing more harm than good? And of course, he owns the field, this guy. So he has carte blanche to do what he wants. Whereas they were sort of subject to funding restraints. So their digs couldn't go on for very long. And they maintain that it was actually, they say the centre of the city must have been in a completely different place. Whereas he's now saying everything that they had done by the book is, is a load of rubbish. That, that, that's kind of, and and they, don't, they don't get on. I mean, I think if you went to Trellec and they would sort of cross the, cross the street to avoid each other. And people take sides online. So when this came out, if you read the comments beneath the newspaper articles that have covered it, everyone's gunning for Stuart Wilson. They love the idea of this rogue outsider who ignored the experts, followed the strength of his own convictions and and found a utopia hiding in plain sight so the, the many pro brexit people were saying that but even in america there's sort of like it's like trump you know we we're, we're gunning for the underdog and it has got very vitriolic on, on twitter you know the, the how also sort of like well if it's if it really was a city then where's the cathedral Which obviously opens up a whole academic debate about what is a city so yeah it it's living and and it's really nice to see not just the city rearing from the earth, but oozing out onto the kind of mud-slinging coliseum that is Twitter as well.
0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before all of our listeners will of course be acutely aware of the destructive potential of climate change to redraw the map of britain in the coming century but climate change destroying our settlements and cities is not a new phenomenon You've already mentioned in passing Winchelsea and Dunwich, two drowned medieval cities, but we did not talk about the climate phenomenon that led to them drowning, which is the Little Ice Age. Will you take us back to this turbulent period of European history?
1: Yes, this is the transition between what was described as the medieval warm period and the Little Ice Age. So it began to kick in around about the middle of the 13th century. Uh, the climate deteriorated and uh, there, there were droughts all over Europe and there were an awful lot of floods and drownings. One climate historian has estimated that 1.5 million people in northwest Europe um, drowned in that period. And the phenomenon was not caused, it's important, to, to flag up, it was nothing to do with human behaviour. So it's thought that it was caused by an upflare in solar radiation and a change in the tilt of the Earth on its axis, You know, which is not to say, you know, some people have tried to conclude, well, all, the, all climate change happened before, it's happened again, there's nothing to do about it. Absolutely, it's very different because currently man-made, back then was not. But it does seem to have precipitated... Um, or being accompanied by unusually tempestuous weather. And this was something that uh, a place called Old Winchelsea discovered to its cost. Now, Old Winchelsea was a major port on the Sussex coast. Uh, It was located near the narrowest crossing between, one of the narrowest crossings between England and France. So advantageously located for trade, particularly the wine trade with Gascony. Unfortunately, it was built on a shingle spit. Now, that might sound like an absolutely insane thing to to build a city on a shingle spit. And perhaps the language is a bit misleading. It's more like a kind of shingle promontory. And it actually had kind of stabilising dunes and and quite a lot of places were, were, were built on these things. So it wouldn't have looked as precarious as it turned out to be. Because from 1250, these ferocious storms torpedoed into the city, and just swept so much of it off its shingle bank into the sea. Everyone could see what was going to happen. Even the king issues this rather haunting proclamation saying sort of old Winchelsea is so much immersed and it is hopeless long to stand. And he was right about that because in 1288, there was a sort of triptych of calamitous storms which just swept what remained of it into the deep. So all all the streets, all the houses, you can imagine... terrifying scenes because it was often happened at night just the timber beams in people's houses became battering rams knocking into other houses knocking into people's heads. the kind of churches were uprooted and people would have been swept off and just into the sea middle, it must have been absolutely terrifying and the whole thing had vanished by the 1290s you see it on later maps as this kind of shadowy blotch a long way out to sea it's quite ghostly and the king decided to, to translate this drowned city, to resurrect it elsewhere. So it was rebuilt on a hill further inland. So that, that has its own tragic story, New Winchelsea, which we could maybe come back to. But th- this transition into the Little Ice Age also affected Donwich, which we talked about a bit earlier. And those storms that I mentioned that kept on cutting away at the city that was built on the cliff precipitated a process of coastal erosion which meant by the time the horseback topographers arrived in Queen Elizabeth's reign, half of it was sunk and it kept on being eaten away in devastating increments by the sea until by 1922 there was just one battered sort of stone shard that was all that was left of the final church, all saints just teetering on the brink, captured majestically in Um, harrowingly, in in a series of postcards where you see the cliff getting closer and closer and closer. Um, And then in 1922, finally, that last remaining shard toppled off and plunged into the waves below. So it is now a bona fide drowned city. But I think people often think of climate change as a relatively modern phenomenon, but as as that shows, it did happen in the Middle Ages as well. We we can't be 100% sure that those storms wouldn't have happened anyway, but it does seem to have been accompanied by this tempestuous period all over Europe. And even so, it's kind of irrelevant, because what it it brings home is just the precarity of so many of our settlements today, particularly in coastal areas, because places like Donat-Chonald-Winchelsea fell foul of just the kind of extreme weather events that we're going to see an awful lot more of um, if we continue on our current trajectory.
0: Let's bring your journey back to the present day. The most surreal experience of the book takes place in Norfolk, where you visited a place that is both lost and very much still alive.
1: Yes. This is Stanta, which no, no one really knows about. I mean, it, it, it's very hard to find out anything about it. But it's one of the vast swaths of the country that was requisitioned by the military, or the War Office as it was known, in the 1940s to prepare the troops for the D-Day landings and all over the country in fact it's an extraordinary statistic but 20% of the entire landmass of the United Kingdom was appropriated by the military in that way and in lots of the places of course there were villages thriving villages prosperous villages and they were all forcibly evacuated and uh, in many cases the inhabitants were told, you know, that this is just a temporary thing whilst we win the war, then you'll be allowed back. And people believed it. But if you look at these places, if you look at Stanta in the Brecklands in Norfolk, a little bit of this in Suffolk, uh, look at it on Google Maps, it's ghostly because you see roads, sometimes quite major roads, sort of coursing towards villages, but then they stop abruptly You see it if you look on Google Satellite View or even just normal Google Maps. And it leaves the kind of outline of a spectral shape within, like a ghost heart. And these villages, in fact, were never given back in spite of the promises that had been made by the promises that I found archival evidence of, actually. Even though that's not part of the official narrative, people were definitely told you can go back. But they never were because what this place became was this extraordinary shadowland of dissimulation and mirage so not content with just you know using the lands to fire missiles they actually wanted to recreate in as vivid a way as possible what the troops were going to find when they landed um, in Normandy so they they sort of changed villages to make it look like a sort of Nazi occupied Europe to train people to fight in close quarters and of course the, the, the war ended and the land could have been given back, but was not. So, like, that, nature was left to run wild. So that's one of the things you see in, in, in this kind of sandy gorse land. Like, the, 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 the sort of untrammeled flowering of nature is quite extraordinary, even though it's interspersed with all these kind of ghost churches and ruined buildings. But the whole area came to mimic, if you like, the changing face of evil abroad. So... When we get to the Cold War in, in the 80s, uh, they began to modify the ghost villages within to emulate sort of villages in Soviet territory and latterly villages from the Balkans and um, villages in Northern Ireland even. But perhaps the most um, surreal part of this, it's very black mirror, is when, I, when I, I got a tour of this place and this, this wonderful military attaché was driving you around it, I was very proud of it. I um, mean, you saw like disused runways things that used to be sort of cricket pitches but were now just lying fallow and we suddenly saw these kind of it looked like a sort of concrete labyrinth on the horizon just this concrete bunkers completely discordant under the Norfolk sky and then we went in and uh, sort of found like a, a series of sort of like chambers we found like wells we saw graffiti an advert for like a FM we saw all sorts of kind of pickled containers and jars which was like cool cool things that that i wasn't able to read and this had actually been modified as a simulacrum of an afghan village to kind of prepare troops who were going out um, to fight in that part of the world and in its day this is the really remarkable bit it was populated with afghan emigre actors and gurkhas as well and it was almost like a sort of a macabre, immersive theatre because they would get these sort of amputee actors to play victims of suicide bombers and, and, and the soldiers would have to go and sort of rush to their help. They would pump out the sort of synthetic aromas of the smells that people would encounter once they got there. There were um, sonorous mosques and wells, which weren't actually wells. And the whole thing was like this weird simulacrum sort of but so many troops, pretty much all the troops that were passing through to the Middle East would have trained there for a while. But now it's full in silence. Um, it, it once again is a kind of ghost village because we'll, we all know what, what, what's happened with the campaign in Afghanistan. So, so that was one place where normally, as, as I've been saying, these places sort of degenerate. They become spectral echoes of their former selves. Winchelsea is, is, is a spectral echo of what it was in its medieval bravura but actually in the case of Stanta you see them assuming completely new identities and it's sort of chilling because you think well what kind of village is going to sprout in in this landscape of dissimulation next how much of the country could just be reappropriated by the military at the click of fingers you know and, and people forcibly evicted so we'll have to wait and see
0: which parts of the country are set to vanish in the coming decades Give us a map of the UK in 21-22.
1: Well, obviously, I, I don't know, um, is probably the, the first thing I should say. But what we are seeing at the moment is coastal communities crumbling into the sea, sometimes crashing into the sea. So if you go to Fairbourne in Wales, this is uh, somewhere that has almost been written off by the council. It's been sort of subject to a, a policy of managed oblivion because there's nothing that really can be done anymore you know, within the budget to stop the cliffs eroding. Houses are toppling off and the whole thing will be a ghost village before too much longer. Ditto a place called Skipsea in the East Riding in Yorkshire. That's part of the fastest eroding coastline in Europe. Obviously erosion is nothing new. But the effects are exacerbated by the, these these sorts of extreme weather events that I've been talking about. But also remember, so many of our major cities are built on on the coast. Some of them are like on on riverine. You know, not not a word you hear very often, but um, that they're, they're on tidal rivers. So London, one need only go online and and you can find credible reports. Yet you find maps showing you know how much of London is going to be underwater if. Uh, the temperature increase is limited to one point five to two point five three, etc. And then some of those are, are chilling, like, apocalyptic Read really, I mean, the, some some predictions show that the the bulk of London will be completely underwater by twenty ninety unless massive mitigations are put in place. And if that happens, then you know it 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 could be conceivable that people might just go and sort of look down at the drowned city and and say that they can hear the bells of all the old Ren churches sounding just like people say in Dunwich. So there's that, but also let's not forget pandemics because we've just lived through what are living through one. If you read my book, you'll see that um, a staggering 3,000 villages vanished in the Middle Ages, not directly because of the Black Death, but as as an indirect effect of the economic consequences of them in the long term in short, because half the population was dead, demand for labour massively outstripped supply, so tenants and peasants, labourers could demand higher wages, and it made more sense for the landowners simply to evict them and bring in sheep instead. So you get all this writing about man-eating sheep in the Renaissance period, and those places are just scorched into the earth, and so there could be worse pandemics than coronavirus. You know, as icebergs ice melt, there could be pathogens released or as human habitats and animal habitats coming to closer proximity enhances the likelihood of of, of pathogens leaping across. So if, if we get one that mercifully doesn't spare the, the, the healthy and, and, and the young, then, you know, we, we could see lots of places being wiped out by some other kind of pandemic or even threats that we don't know about. The... The thing to take away is if you look at a map of England, of Britain rather, in um, 1225, it looks completely different to now. Just as I suspect, one in 2122 will look different from today's. So, one of the reasons I wanted to write about all these places was to kind of challenge our sense of carelessness and neglect, and sort of hammer home the the sort of fragility of many of our communities.
0: And it's a beautiful and bleak note to end on. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: This week's podcast starred Matthew Green and was presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Daugherty, and the series is produced by me and Dana Outcult. There is a lot more history in our archives covering everything from the earliest humans to the historical accuracy of Monty Python's Holy Grail you'll find it all at howtoacademy.com along with our upcoming live events program and howto plus our all you can eat subscription service until next time thanks for listening